The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 6, 1 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no money bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Molly. Well, good evening. It's really uh, good to be with you again this evening. Um, for anyone who... I have not had the pleasure of meeting. My name is Steve Curry, and I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. We've been uh, working our way through the book of Mark for a few months now, and we're not quite halfway finished with the book, close. And uh, so tonight, we're going to take a look at some of these verses from chapter 6 that, um, that we just read together. I'm going to be introducing to you a couple of men from the 19th century who have a place in our story today. And we don't hear a lot about these guys um, these days, but uh, in their time, they were household names. Everybody knew who these people were. Well, the first man is William Sidney Porter. Now, William was born in Greensboro, North Carolina during the American Civil War. And then as a young man, he bounced around doing several different jobs. He was trained as a pharmacist, so he worked as a pharmacist for a while. Uh, he worked as a ranch hand doing uh, as a cowpoke. He worked as a draftsman for a couple of years. And then finally, he wound up as a bank teller. Well, in the late 1890s, um, he began to write short stories that were being published by a New York magazine. But he didn't write these under his own name because he was just finishing up a five-year sentence for embezzling money from that bank where he had worked. And uh, so anyway, he chose a pen name, and that pen name was O. Henry. So O. Henry became immensely popular in those years because of a technique that he perfected known as the plot twist ending. So you'd be reading one of his stories, and you'd kind of get towards the end, and you'd say, okay, I think I know where this is going. And then all of a sudden, the story would go off someplace else and would wind up in a totally different place. So for you movie buffs, uh, this, you'll recognize this technique as a, a favorite device of M. Night Shyamalan. 
He, he does that in his movies. The Sixth Sense, uh, Signs, The Village, all of them are going along and then they wind up someplace that you really didn't expect. So, one of O. Henry's stories tells of a young woman named Johnsy who lives in a tenement slum in New York City and she is desperately ill with pneumonia. Johnsy is an artist, as are many of the other people in this building, and one of Johnsy's only friends is an elderly artist who lives downstairs, whose name is Berman. Now, Berman has never really been successful as an artist, but he keeps dreaming about and talking about the day when he will paint his masterpiece, but everybody knows that it's not going to happen. Well, Berman cares about Johnsy and about her roommate, Sue, and, um, and he encourages Johnsy even as she's getting weaker and weaker. So Johnsy's only view from her window is the brick wall of another tenement building a few yards away. But next to that wall is a leafy tree. Winter is approaching, and each day the tree sheds more of its leaves. Well, Johnsy becomes fixated on these falling leaves and she decides that when the last leaf falls, that's when she'll die. One by one, the leaves fall from the tree until there's only one leaf left. But this leaf holds on, and it refuses to fall. And day after day, it just hangs there. And, and Johnsy begins to be encouraged by that last leaf. If it can hold on, maybe she should too. And then she begins to improve. A week later, she's much better, but she realizes that she hasn't heard from Berman, and so she asks about him. Well, she learns that Berman himself had contracted pneumonia, and he had died. But not before he had spent all night, a week earlier, in the rain and the cold, on a ladder, painting a leaf on the wall outside Johnsy's window. So that leaf painted the night that the last real leaf fell was Berman's masterpiece. See, when I, when I read that the first time, I thought, I didn't see that coming, <laughs> you know? I mean, I thought I knew where it was going, and it wound up someplace completely different. It, um, it just wasn't what I expected. So I share that story because I really had the same response the first time that I read through the Gospels. Uh, over and over, I would think I knew where this was headed only to find out that it, I was surprised by the way things panned out. I found myself thinking, I didn't see that coming. Mark 5, Jesus casts a legion of demons out of a man. So this person who the, everybody knew as a naked, crazed graveyard dweller is completely healed. Well, that's certainly going to spark a revival there, won't it? But except it doesn't. The townspeople, in fear, instead asked Jesus to leave. I didn't see that coming. Then the synagogue official begs Jesus to come and heal his little daughter, who is at the point of death. So Jesus makes a beeline to her side and heals her, except he didn't. So he seemingly gets sidetracked by healing this older woman. The little girl dies, and so then Jesus winds up a little while later raising her from the dead. Again, not what I expected. Well, what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to pray now and ask God to help us as we look at these verses in Mark chapter 6 um, and these sometimes really surprising events and that we can see them the same way that Jesus' disciples saw them in real time. 
So, Father, we, we come before you and, and we ask for your help tonight, Lord, as we, as we look at your word. Lord, you said that your word would not return to you without accomplishing that for which you sent it. And so, Lord, we're asking that that, that would be true here tonight. Lord, that your word would go out and that it would change us, Lord, that it would make us more like Jesus. It's for his sake that we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 6 and verse 1 has Jesus returning home to his hometown with his disciples. So his hometown, it, it doesn't tell us what that, that town was, but that hometown would be Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. Okay, so we don't know a lot about Nazareth other than that it was a small village and from what we can infer from what Nathaniel said about it when he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So maybe Nazareth wasn't known for turning out important products or important people, but this is Jesus' hometown. So he's coming home now, and, um, and, and he'll have the, the home court advantage, right? So it's hometown boy does good in the big city, and now he's coming back home to a hero's welcome. People will listen to him now, except that's not what happens. He begins to teach in the synagogue, and according to verse 2, people are first astonished by his wisdom and by the mighty works that he has done. But then listen to the direction that their astonishment takes them. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. See, I didn't see that coming. That was a surprise. Well, maybe I should have. I think that we have a tendency to take that which is familiar to us and make it commonplace and unimportant. Have you ever noticed that it's harder to hear something from someone who is really close to you than if someone else comes from out of town and says exactly the same thing? <laughs> Suddenly you can hear it. Well, it probably shouldn't be that way, but that's how it is. There's actually a rule of thumb that says that the farther away from home you travel, the more people will listen to you. Well, the people of Nazareth weren't questioning whether the wisdom that Jesus was revealing was God's wisdom. They weren't even questioning whether the mighty works were God's works. They were stumbling over the vessel that God was using. When it says they took offense at him, the original word there is scandalon, from which we get our English word scandalized. So they were scandalized that God was using this uneducated carpenter's son to be God's emissary to them. That's what Jesus meant when in verse 4 he said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So, you know, even when we're relating to one another in this room, because many of us have gotten to know one another in our weaknesses and our brokenness and our foibles and our idiosyncrasies, sometimes we discount the image of God in each other and make it harder to hear God's voice in one another. Uh, C.S. Lewis addressed this when he said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, 
cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So if we could just imagine things in, in 10,000 years, this room in 10,000 years, see the walls won't be here anymore, the ceiling won't be here anymore, all our places of employment will be gone, all the projects that are so important to us today, they'll be long forgotten. What will remain are the immortal beings that we all are. As Lewis so graphically and succinctly put it, either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Well, just four days before his crucifixion, Jesus said something um, that was really pointed about this subject. Beginning in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now listen to this verse. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, he didn't say they would never, ever see him again, but the condition for them seeing him again is their willingness to receive anybody that God sends to them. Four days later, Jesus was dead. Then in three more days, he walked out of that cave where they had entombed him because death just wasn't strong enough to hold him. He spent the next 40 days with his disciples, uh, sharing life with them, and then he ascended back to the Father. Then the disciples spent the next 10 days praying and waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit had come and filled that little band of believers, Peter preaches one of the most powerful messages recorded in the New Testament. Listen to the response of the people of Jerusalem that day after Peter had finished his message. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So here's what they were saying. Peter and you other brothers here, we receive you in the name of the Lord. How do we get out of this mess that we're in? 3,000 people blessed them that were sent in the name of the Lord that day, and 3,000 people met Jesus, just like he said they would. See, this was the fulfillment of what Jesus had said to the city of Jerusalem. Well, let me throw one other little thing in the mix here, and this one's for free. In my experience, about 10% of what our critics have to say either to us or about us is God's word to us. It's harder for us to hear because these people don't like us and, um, you know, they want to do me harm. But it's still God's word to us. So here's my first admonition to us today. We need to be careful to receive anyone sent in the name of the Lord. We need to be careful to receive anyone sent in the name of the Lord. Okay, well, let's make that practical. Who are we talking about there? I think we could think about this in, term of, in terms of concentric circles. So who are the closest people to you? If you're married, it will probably be your spouse. 
then there's your children. See, you, God can speak to you through your children. It happens. I mean, I've, I've heard so much through my children. And then go out to the next circle, your friends, your acquaintances, maybe your coworkers, your, the people that are in your community group. And then another concentric circle even further out. I mean, we, we want to keep going out. We want to be able to even hear from those who are complete strangers to us. We want to always have one ear open to the Lord as we're in any conversation with anyone saying, Lord, are you speaking to me right now? Is there anything of what I'm hearing that is your word to us? Okay, we'll look now at the first part of verse 5. What was the result of Jesus' closest neighbors and relatives not being able to see God at work in him? He could do no mighty work there. So how much Jesus could do to help them was being limited by their unbelief. Now that just doesn't mean that Jesus was incapable or he was unable to do anything there. It just means that he could not um, force his love on them when they were saying, get away. So that was limiting what Jesus could do in that place. But look at this little caveat at the end of the verse. He could do no mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. So that was, that was all he could do. So what happened at church today? Oh, not much. You know, we laid hands on a few sick people and God healed them all. That's all. That'd be a pretty great day around here. But God had even greater expressions of his love that he wanted to do in Nazareth that he couldn't do because of their unbelief. Who do you think those few sick people were who received healing that day in Nazareth? I suspect that they were people very much like the people that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The man tormented by a legion of demons. The woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years. And Jairus, whose little daughter had just died. People who were so desperate that they chose to get beyond their fears and beyond their prejudices just to fall at Jesus' feet and ask for mercy. So the big problem in Nazareth was unbelief. I think we can safely say that the opposite of unbelief is belief. But then the question becomes, belief in what? Belief in whom? See, how does that practically work out? James, discussing faith and works in his letter to the 12 tribes of Israel, in chapter 2 wrote this, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James is saying that if what you're doing is simply giving mental assent to the fact of God's existence, good for you. You now have the same level of faith as Satan does. <laughs> you know? Um, so I love the way that the Amplified Bible talks about belief. Whenever it translates the word believe, it also includes the phrase trusts in and relies on. So John 3.16 becomes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in, trusts in, and relies on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, Satan knows for certain that Jesus exists, but he neither trusts in him nor relies on him. So this belief that we're being called to 
is something much greater than just a mental nod in our heads. It causes us to act. So as the prophet Bob Dylan summed it up so well, he's saying, you've either got faith or you've got unbelief, and there ain't no neutral ground. Verse 6 says, and Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. To marvel means to be surprised and amazed. Jesus' friends and family amazed him with their unbelief. Bible only talks about one other time when Jesus was amazed, and that story is found in Matthew chapter 8. Beginning with verse 5, we read, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Uh, this is an amazing passage uh, for so many reasons. First, this Roman centurion was a Gentile, completely cut off from the old covenant promises of God. He was also a hated Roman occupying commander, maybe the equivalent of a modern-day lieutenant colonel. But this man's love for his servant overcomes his lack of standing in Jewish culture and even the possibility of being rejected by Jesus. So the man comes and appeals to him. Then when Jesus agrees to go home with him and heal the servant, the centurion shows amazing insight into Jesus' ministry on the earth. Lord, I'm not willing, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, and let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Well, that Roman centurion recognized things that it was going to take the disciples a while to figure out. Jesus had been sent by the Father and was a man under authority. Jesus said things like, I only do the things that I see the Father doing. And I don't speak on my own initiative, but as I hear the Father, then I speak. The centurion recognized that Jesus was both under authority and he was exercising authority the same way that that centurion was. And that it would only take a word from Jesus for the servant to be healed. And Jesus was amazed by the man's faith. So while Jesus' hometown amazed him with their unbelief, a man who had no claim to anything amazed him with his faith. So here's my second admonition to us today. If we're going to amaze God, let it be with our belief and not with our unbelief. Practically, how does that work? See, every day we wake up with new opportunities to obey or to disobey. I think it's a good idea to begin our days with a prayer that says, Lord, help me today to amaze you with, with my belief and not with my unbelief. Help me as I walk through this day, as I listen to you, and as I, I too am a man under authority, help me to obey you today. Okay, um, 
Beginning in uh, chapter 6 and verse 7, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two into the surrounding countryside to preach the gospel. This is the first time that he has allowed them to do ministry apart from him. So notice the explicit directions that he gives them about what they're to do. They have instructions about what to take with them, how to minister to the people when they, when they arrive in these cities, and even what to do if you get rejected. Now, these instructions about what to do when you're rejected was especially important because James and John had already wanted to napalm a Samaritan village because it didn't receive Jesus, okay? The sons of thunder needed some guidelines here about what to do when you're rejected. Well, there's a lot that we could say from these verses, but what I want to focus on today is looking at this from the perspective of his 12 guys. They had seen Jesus do some amazing things. The demonized guy who nobody could subdue was set completely free. Woman was miraculously healed from a long-standing illness. Little girl had just been raised from the dead. See, that's pretty heady stuff. But then they had watched as Jesus was kicked out of the country of the Gerasenes, and then he was ridiculed in his own hometown of Nazareth. Now they were being commissioned to go out and do the same kind of things and maybe suffer the same kinds of rejection. Oh, and by the way, all that you get to take with you are your walking stick, okay, um, your sandals, and the shirt that's on your back. That's it. Okay. Um, no sack lunch, no bug out bag, and no credit cards. So, um, you know, so much for the backup plan if the ministry trip doesn't work out. You know, they were, they were very vulnerable at this point. So why did Jesus send them out so vulnerable? I think he did that to teach them a valuable lesson that they needed to learn and all of us need to learn as well. Our Father is enough. Our Father is enough. He doesn't need any help to care for us. Now, ultimately, he may use our jobs to provide us with food and shelter. Uh, he may use Blue Cross and Blue Shield. He may use a 401k. He may uh, sometimes use a stimulus check to help us along. But he doesn't need any of those things. He could just as easily feed us by having ravens bring food to us or by having us go over to Lake Hefner, throw a hook in the water, don't bother to bait it, pull up the first fish that bites, take the gold coin out of his mouth, and go pay your taxes. See, he did both of those things for people in Scripture. Now, before anybody quits their job so that God can take care of them, like he did Peter, James, and John, let me point out that these guys were obeying Jesus' specific command to go out that vulnerable. Do that on your own, and what you get is cold and hungry. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. <clears throat> Well, when I was a new believer, I spent a few months in Kansas City with about 25 other guys ministering on the streets and in the parks. Kansas City has some, some great parks. Uh, in the early 70s, there were a lot of kids hitchhiking, mostly west towards California. And as they passed through Kansas City, they were naturally drawn to the parks as, as places to camp out. Well, we'd take our guitars We'd begin, sit in a circle, begin to uh, sing some worship songs. It usually drew a crowd. 
And after a few minutes, someone would stand up and give a gospel message. And it was an unusual day that we didn't bring new converts home with us. Um, so we lived together in an old three-story house at 4310 Harrison Street in Kansas City. We named it the House of Agape. We felt really clear about our call to be out on the streets, so none of us had paying jobs, but God took care of us. I remember once when we came home about 5 o'clock uh, from being all day in Swope Park preaching the gospel, and we were bringing, you know, probably three new believers in tow that day. We were all pretty hungry, but we discovered that there was nothing to eat in the house. I mean, the cupboards were truly bare. So we gathered in the living room, and we began to worship and pray. After about 15 minutes, a knock came on the door. One guy went to the door, and there was a guy standing there in military fatigues, and uh, he identified himself as uh, from the National Guard Armory down the street. And it seems they had had uh, some kind of a banquet there, but amazingly, most of the people that were invited didn't come. And so he had a six-by-six six truck parked out front with about 50 steaks and mashed potatoes and gravy and vegetables and plates and glasses and, I mean, napkins. He had the whole thing, and he wanted to know if we could use that food. So the night that we ran out of food, we ate really well. The Father took care of us. About a year later, I was back in Las Vegas again, sent out to minister on the streets, and uh, we were living in a smaller community of believers. Now, one of the guys, Wally, felt really clear that God wanted him to get a 9-to-5 job so that he could help support the ministry. Um, he got a job at the local 7-Eleven, and 7-Elevens back then uh, actually opened at 7 a.m. and closed at 11 p.m., um, our, the house where we all lived together, uh, the rent was $255.62 a month, and it was due the next Thursday. Well, this was Wednesday night. We didn't have the money, and Wally didn't get paid for another week. So we got together in the living room. We prayed, turned it over to the Lord, and, um, and a bunch of us went to bed. Well, Wally, as the last act of, uh, of his job that night, he had to wash down the uh, parking lot where all the Slurpee residue had gathered. And so he's washing down the parking lot, uh, and he notices that he's blowing an envelope along. And uh, so he stops, he gets the envelope, looks in it, and it's got money in it. And so he closed it really quick, and he prayed and said, Lord, if there is exactly $255.62 in this envelope, I'll know that it's from you. Anybody want to guess how much money there was in the envelope? <laughs> it was $255.62. So we lived that way for a couple of years, seeing God's miraculous provision really daily. But then I began to feel something shifting. Um, it was almost like the Lord was saying, Steve, do you believe that I am able to care for you in all situations? And, and I could honestly say, yes, Lord, you are so faithful you can do anything. And then the Lord said, okay, I want you to go get a job. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I really didn't. <laughs> Looking back, there were so many things that I needed to learn that could only be learned having a job. 
how to balance a checkbook. So you don't need to balance a checkbook if you're just waiting for God to, waiting for the raven to show up today. <laughs> Who needs a checkbook? Uh, you don't have to worry about paying bills on time. You don't have to worry about budgeting money. Um, but what I desperately needed to learn was how to do that long obedience in the same direction. Now, up to that point, I'd been like a, a sprinter for Jesus every day running the 100-yard dash again. And now I started to learn Forrest Gump style how to run from coast to coast to coast to coast to coast. Luke chapter 22, after Jesus had eaten the Last Supper with his disciples, he's giving them some last-minute instructions before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So he reminds them of that time when he sent them out without anything. In verse 35, he asks, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And they said to them, It's enough. So it was a new day with new instructions, but the lessons that they had learned when he sent them out without anything at all were lessons that would stick with them for the rest of their lives and serve them well the rest of their lives. Well, this leads us to the second 19th century guy that I talked about. Charles Blondin was a French high-wire acrobat who came to the United States in 1859 and decided to walk a quarter-mile rope stretched across Niagara Falls. Now, no one had ever done this before, and uh, Blondin was a great self-promoter. So he made sure that all the newspapers knew about his attempt in advance. Now, um, on the big day, a crowd of thousands had gathered there to see him try. So Blondin gets up and says, How many of you think that I can do this? And the crowd roared, oh, yes, Charles, you can do this. So Blondin asked, okay, who will come with me across on my back? And you could have heard a pin drop. See? All those people who were so sure that Blondin could do it suddenly fell silent when they realized that they were being asked to get skin in the game. So Blondin stepped out onto the rope 17 minutes later, he arrived safely on the Canadian side. It only took him 15 minutes to get back to the U.S. And just to prove that he could do it, while the crowd was standing there, Blondin took his manager across and back on his back. Later, Blondin used, pushed a wheelbarrow across the falls. He crossed the falls on stilts. How you can cross on stilts on a rope, I have no idea. He sat on a chair that was balanced on only one leg on the rope, and he took a small cook stove out to the middle of the falls, cooked an omelet, and ate his breakfast out there. It's estimated that by the end of his life, he had crossed Niagara Falls 300 times. And for anybody that's curious, Charles Blondin died in his own bed of old age. <laughs> So, here's admonition number three. Be willing to be sent outside your comfort zone. Great things happen there. See? So, obeying God 
And exercising faith requires risk. It does. It doesn't have to be just climbing on Charles Blondin's back. It, it's risky when we feel like God wants us to go up and speak something to somebody. See, that's risky. They might reject me. I might be wrong. I might have this totally wrong. Those are risky things, and yet God calls us to risk. Great things happen out there on that rope. We've talked a lot about uh, believing this evening. I hope that you can hear that the faith that Jesus is calling us to is faith in his faithfulness. Faith in his faithfulness. Not faith in some specific outcome that we get fixated on. Jesus' invitation to us is a whole lot like Blondin's invitation to the crowd that day. Climb on and let me carry you across. And our fears are a lot like their fears. But what if he drops me? See, there was a real possibility that Charles Blondin would drop his manager. Jesus has never dropped anybody ever, nor will he ever do that. See? The love that he has for us is a strong, boundless love. It's a father's love. When he found us, all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. Some of C.S. Lewis's immortal horrors. Right? The best news that any of us will ever hear is that through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, God moves us from being the dead in the sins but still walking around immortal horrors to becoming everlasting splendors in his family. Honestly, why he would want us, I have no idea. I really don't. As I look at myself, hey, as I look at you, I think, why would God want us? I don't know, but I'm eternally grateful that he does. Well, if you would like to pray with someone about all of this, we're going to have some people up here in a few minutes who would be happy to listen to you and to pray with you. Um, if you've been riding the fence over Jesus' claims for your life, um, or if you've been maybe like poking Christianity with a stick, I would encourage you to take that step of faith out into his love today. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you love us. And Lord, it is amazing to us that you do. Father, I, I pray for all my friends here today. Lord, I know that we're, we're all in different places. Lord, we, we all have different challenges. Some of us uh, came in here lighthearted. Some of us came in weighted down. Lord, some of us have walked with you for a long time. Uh, some of us have only walked with you for a few weeks. And Lord, some of us don't know you at all. But Father, you know where each of us is. And Lord, you know um, what our hearts need. So Father, I pray that you would touch us today. Lord, that you would minister your life to us tonight. And that you would help us to take that step of faith out into your love. It's for Jesus' sake that we pray this. Amen.